This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. Today, I'm stepping outside my expertise on environment and climate policy to discuss a topic much in the news, inflation, what is causing it, and why, in what may be a surprise to some of you, it's going away. By the way, it has nothing to do with the recently enacted, brilliantly marketed, but falsely named Inflation Reduction Act. Why am I taking this on, yes? Because recently, at a monthly event hosted by the Institute for Policy Innovation, I heard a really insightful talk from Donald Luskin, Chief Investment Officer for Trend Macro. Aside from this role, he is a frequent contributor to various national publications, including the Wall Street Journal. I thought Heartland listeners would find Luskin's discussion equally interesting. Donald, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Don, before we jump into a discussion of why you think inflation is already solved in some sense, please tell us a little bit about your background, your past economic work, and what Trend Macro does and how you approach economics and policy. Uh, Trend Macro is an economics and market strategy firm that serves global institutional investors. We have 120 clients around the world. They're just a who's who of major institutional investors. You know, just you know, think of a major institutional investor, guarantee you they're a client. Uh, we've been doing this for 21 years. For about 20 years prior to that, I was uh, an institutional investment manager. And, you know, in, in, in my 40-plus years of doing this, I've consulted with Federal Reserve chairmen and presidents of the United States. And uh, it's, you know, this, this is just the, the best job you could possibly have, man. It's, uh, when, when, you, when you're involved in economics, that means that you have an excuse to just get interested in anything that's going on in the world. You can, be, you can become an expert on anything. Uh, you asked what our approach is. Uh, we are not dogmatic, theoretical economists. We are very practical, data-driven. Uh, our clients are institutional investors who you know, don't care about the niceties of economic uh, theory. They, they need us to be right. We need to make forecasts that are right. So everything that I'm going to talk to you about today is driven very rigorously and scrupulously by data. And I hope I can, I can, hope I can bring that out and you know, give a little extra dimension of credibility to what I'm trying to say here. Great. So in your talk at the Institute for Policy Innovation Luncheon, you said inflation is caused by one thing and one thing only. What is that? Well, I'm going to quote a great economist, Milton Friedman, a great American, a great conservative, a great libertarian, who won the Nobel Prize in economics in 1976 for basically an explanation of what inflation is, what causes it, and how to fix it. He famously said in a 1969 lecture, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. In other words, it's not the result of gasoline prices going up. It's not the result of anything in the real economy that might happen because of some temporary or abundance of scarcity or scarcity. It has one cause and one cause only, and this has been true for thousands of years. When government creates too much money. The amount of money in circulation gets out of proportion 
to the amount of goods and services in circulation. If there's a sudden change in the amount of money, then all the goods and services in the economy that are all priced in that money will appear to go up in price. But what's really happening is that the money that the government issues, that governments for thousands of years have had a monopoly on issuing, it becomes less valuable. So everything priced in that money appears to become more valuable. That's all inflation ever can be. You said also, you, you said uh, sort of a common man's definition was too much money chasing too few goods, right? Right. So a, a good example of that would be the uh, the experience we've lived through in the lockdowns uh, during the, uh, the worst of the pandemic in uh, 2020. That shut the whole world's economy down. Uh, only essential workers, so-called, could could work. Uh, there were all kinds of goods and services that could not be produced and could not be consumed. And when the lockdowns ended, you know, when you throw the economy into a hard stop and try to start it up again, it's not going to just, you know, you can't just snap your fingers and have everything going the way it used to be, especially when a lot of the products that we buy in our modern world are the uh, result of complex global supply chains where a given car nowadays has you know, 10,000 parts that probably come from 20 different countries. So we here in the United States, you know, we've pretty much come out of our lockdowns, but, you know, there are still some Asian countries that are very locked down, and they produce some critical ingredients for the, you know, the modern cars that we use with all the electronics in them and all the safety features. So we have too few goods. At the same time, we have an explosion in the amount of money in the economy. And that's because of the pandemic also. Or I should say, it's because of the government's response to the pandemic. When the government made the choice to lock down the economy, it made the choice at the same time to compensate people for all the economic hardship. And you can see why they did that. I suppose you could say it's only fair. But in the United States, for example, over an 11-month period, $6 trillion of government money was appropriated by Congress under both presidents, Trump and Biden, and was showered on the American people in the form of stimulus payments, refundable child credits through the tax code for people who don't even pay taxes. You, you get a refund on taxes you didn't even pay, depending on how many children you have. If you were one of the 15% of Americans who, at worst, lost their job during the pandemic lockdowns, you were given enhanced and extended unemployment benefits, which I calculated at the time were, at least on average, 24.6% more than you were making when you were working. If you were a small company, if you were, say, a restaurant, and you were forced into shutdown for three months, you were eligible for a Paycheck Protection Plan loan, which if you followed, checked all the boxes and did everything the government had you do to qualify for that, at the end of it, they would forgive it. So that's basically a grant, too. It's $6 trillion dropped into savings accounts, money market funds, certificates of deposit, checking accounts. And that is the largest single injection of money into the American economy over the shortest period in the history of the United States of America. And every country did the same thing. And every country did the lockdowns. So every country had too much money chasing too few goods. That's the working definition of inflation. Now, we could have made a choice. We could have said, well, 
we've got too few goods, so there are going to be some of them are going to be in scarcity. You know, cars are going to be in scarcity, uh, chips are going to be in scarcity, uh, gasoline is going to be in scarcity. Uh, so their prices are going to go way, way up. So you might say, well, does that in and of itself not cause inflation? Is it not just that we have too few goods? Nope. You need to have too much money at the same time. Because suppose the price of gasoline goes way, way up, and you have no choice but to buy it. You've still got to drive to work. You've still got to take your kids to school. So you're going to still have to buy, I don't know, whatever it is, 20 gallons of gasoline a week. It doesn't matter if it costs you $3 or $6 a gallon. But if it costs you 6 you're on a budget. So that's going to crowd out other expenditures you might make. You might want to go bowling. You might want to eat out. You might want to buy a new shirt. I'm sorry you can't. That just got crossed out by the increase in the price of gasoline. So how could there be any inflation just because gasoline prices go up? Because in my example, bowling prices, restaurant prices, shirt prices would have to come down because people, perforce, will be buying less of it. Now, the price of gasoline goes way up. You give people $6 trillion, well, they can buy all the gas they want and all the shirts they want and all the restaurant meals they want and go bowling as often as they want. So all of a sudden, it's inflation. Things have to be in balance. That's the primary lesson of studying economics. Everything's a trade-off. Everything's a context. Everything's a balance. We right now have a classic example of doing everything wrong at the same time. Too much money chasing too few goods. None of it had to be, but we have it all. Now, you've given a very direct and, uh, I think, compelling explanation of the current inflation and inflation in general but people often talk about other factors. So what are the other alternative factors commonly thought to cause inflation in general, and the current inflation, and why are these claims wrong? Well, I, I think I've already taken on why uh, if you have a large price increase in a single important commodity like gasoline, where the, the increase in the price of gasoline is not just because of supply chain difficulties resulting from the pandemic, but we had a whole second round of gasoline inflation uh, because of the invasion of Ukraine and what that did to the disruption of uh, energy trade all around the world because Russia is such an impo important provider of uh, crude oil. So many people would call that an oil shock. They would call it inflationary. In fact, our Federal Reserve calls that inflationary. But I believe I've illustrated why it's not inflationary unless you're giving everybody a bunch of money to offset it. Now, it might be recessionary. It might hurt the economy. It, it will might throw people out of work. All that's true. But it's not inflationary. Now, another thing that people, you know, especially modern economists, who have forgotten the wisdom of you know great 20th century economists like Milton Friedman and have moved on to more modern forms of, of economics. Uh, maybe you're familiar with, and maybe some of your uh, readers are familiar with, this whole sort of avant-garde branch of economics called behavioral economics. So the idea of behavioral economics is, well, People aren't really efficient economic actors. You know, Adam Smith may say that competition and capitalism drives people to the common good as though by an invisible hand. Ah, oh, but that's so 18th century. You know, that, that, that assumes that people are rational. You know, we know nowadays that people are stupid and prejudiced and awful, and so they, they are incapable of making rational economic decisions. So if something causes them to expect inflation in their over-emotionalized inner lives, well, they will go out and create inflation for no better reason than because they expect it. 
So how do we know what people expect for inflation? Well, there are polls that are taken about that all the time. The University of Michigan has taken inflation expectation polls since 1979. Uh, in marketplaces, you can uh, buy uh, treasury bonds that are protected against inflation. I'm sure all your readers understand that. That's called TIPS. And you can look at the yield spread between TIPS and regular old treasury bonds. And so you can say, well, that's inflation expectations. So you are told by modern behavioral economists that if people have very bad inflation expectations, if they've just come away from the gas pump and, oh, my God, I just had to pay $6. We must be in Weimar, Germany. Well, now you'll go to the grocery store and you'll say, well, instead of buying one pound of hamburger, I'm going to buy 100 pounds of hamburger and I'm going to freeze it. Because I know that the price of hamburger is probably going to double this year. I expect that. And simply because I expect it, I'm going to make it happen. Because that's what happens when people buy 100 pounds of something when they normally buy one pound of something. Oh, except most people just don't have the money in their pocket to buy 100 pounds of hamburger. They're struggling just buying one at the prices now. So inflation is not, it's not an expectations phenomenon unless people suddenly have more money on which to act on the expectations. So we go right back to Milton Friedman. Inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon because no matter what you expect, you can't make inflation happen if you don't have the money. The thing that I often hear people talk about when they talk about inflation is the Fed and the wow. interest rates. Wow. And certainly Jerome Powell talks about uh, interest rates and how he's going to... Uh, Rain in inflation and the, and the cost. What, what are your, uh, I mean, I think I know what your cost, your thoughts are going to be, but I mean, people do hear that all the time, right? They do. And it's not wrong. It's just not the whole story. Uh, normally, we do not have $6 trillion worth of what amount to welfare payments issued by the federal government to everybody in America over 11 months. Uh, you remember the last time that happened? Yeah, never. But, in an ordinary day, in an ordinary year, the Fed says interest rates. And if the Fed wants to stimulate the economy, it can lower interest rates. And by doing that, it causes people to borrow just a little bit more. Because interest rates are the price of money. And when you lower the price of something, people can afford to buy a little bit more of it. So maybe there was somebody who wanted to borrow money to do something or other, and a 5% interest rate was too high, but the Fed lowers it to 4%. Now all of a sudden, they're going to borrow that money. All of a sudden, it becomes a good idea. So when people borrow money from, say, Wells Fargo Bank, on the day that that loan is approved, Wells Fargo puts however much you're borrowing into your Wells Fargo checking account. So at the stroke of a pen, Wells Fargo's pen, all of a sudden, the money supply, money in your pocket, spendable money for you, just went up by however much you borrowed. And you wouldn't have done that if the Fed hadn't lowered interest rates. So normally, yes, it's the Fed that causes the money supply to grow or contract and determines what rate it grows, or at least tries. It's an imperfect art. But in this one unique moment in history, you can't blame the Fed for this. Because during the pandemic, yeah, sure, they lowered interest rates to zero. But nobody borrowed anything. What were you going to do? You were locked down, right? Uh, credit collapsed during the pandemic lockdowns. Well, I mean, no. they, they, they've had the interest rates low for a, a, an extended period of time now, and we didn't have high inflation 
That's the very best argument, man. So we had a zero interest rate from 2008 to 2015, and we had uh, inflation that every central banker in the world thought was too low for those seven years. So that's not the culprit. The the culprit is self-evidently the fact that all of a sudden the federal government issues $6 trillion worth of income supports to small businesses and households, and all of a sudden you get inflation. All right? I mean, that that's... You don't have to be a genius or a PhD economist to connect those dots. That's just what happened. And yet, <laughs> you wouldn't. You, you wouldn't. You say you don't have to be a genius, and yet you wouldn't get that if you if you listen to the chairman of the Fed or, or the regional bankers and, uh, when they're on. Oh, TV, you must have right? misheard me. I, you, you, no, no, you must have misheard me. I, I <laughs> definitely did not say he's a genius. <laughs> okay, so in your talk. You went into great detail to discuss why you believe the current bout of, of inflation is basically over. Uh, does it? Tell us why, and then tell us if it has anything to do with the Inflation Reduction Act. Okay, the when six trillion dollars of new money is helicopter dropped into the economy, all of a sudden that's a huge amount of buying power. People will, you know, as soon as they were permitted to get out of their lockdowns, uh, they will go out and spend that money, and it'll cause inflation, and that's what's happened. However, the last one of these big COVID income support relief bills was passed in the first week of March last year. So we're a year and a half after that. That's what's caused inflation. It's not happening anymore. So if you will agree with me that the cause of the inflation that we're having is the result of all of that money creation through those COVID bills under Trump and under Biden, it's bipartisan folly, then if that's the cause, and inflation is the effect, then if we stop making that cause happen, then the effect is just going to stop happening. So think of inflation as a big wave that would you know, be in a swimming pool if you dropped a giant boulder in the middle of your swimming pool. So you know, the water would slosh out and you know, get all over your yard and kill your lawn. But if you stop dropping boulders in your swimming pool, there's nothing to make the waves anymore. So we dropped a $6 trillion boulder in our swimming pool, and all the water spilled out. But we're out of boulders. It's done. It's done. Which makes this Inflation Reduction Act just comical <laughs> because you know mark my words uh inflation has already peaked i'll you know, i'll explain more about that in a minute uh but as it continues to come down uh you know, the president and the democrats in congress are, they're going to take credit for it even though the bill was only signed two days ago and uh, inflation actually peaked in march so you know that's 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 pretty powerful you know our, our president and our democratic congress are yeah, I think they have superpowers because you know they they are able to reduce inflation with a bill that no one had even heard of at the time when inflation peaked. And then four months later, they sign it, and wow, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, to, to get inflation to go down before you even take any action to do it, uh, it's magic. So if you're right, inflation is waning, but in your presentation, you warned that actions by the Fed, while having no appreciable effect on inflation, could bring about a serious recession. How so? Well, the the Fed doesn't have very many tools. 
uh, you, you said it yourself, you know, all they can really do is adjust interest rates. In the example I gave you, I was talking about a world in which the Fed wants to stimulate the economy by getting people to borrow uh, more by lowering interest rates. And if they uh, raise interest rates, they get people to borrow less. So when you borrow less, I'm, I'm not saying all uh, activity in the economy is the result of borrowing, but some is. And when you uh, constrict the amount of borrowing, then you know at the edge of things you're uh, constricting the growth potential of the economy. Uh, certainly, for things that ordinarily ordinary consumers tend to buy on credit, like automobiles and houses, uh, you could you know slow down or in in a worst case, if you raise interest rates high enough, just completely halt those markets. And you know those are you know very very big markets that employ a lot of people and entail a lot of investments that people have made. Homes and automobiles are the you know largest investments that most Americans make. So uh, you know, if the Fed raises rates high enough, they can cause a recession. And the idea is, and it's simply an idea, uh, well, if we cause a, reflesh, uh, a recession, then doesn't inflation just have to go down? Well, I don't know. It didn't. It, that didn't work in the 70s. So you know that that doesn't yeah that that was the prior worst inflation we've ever had stagflation yeah yeah right and you know I, I you know I'm I'm a conservative so it's difficult for me to do this but I'm going to favorably quote Senator Elizabeth Warren a Democrat from Massachusetts who was interviewing Fed Chair Jerome Powell in the U.S. Senate about a month ago uh, under the the law that authorizes the Federal Reserve the chairman has to testify twice a year uh, before the Senate and the House separately. And so senators and congressmen get to ask the tough questions. And Elizabeth Warren asked a very tough, very smart question of Jay Powell. She said, Chair Powell, uh, if you keep raising interest rates like you have done already and you say you're going to continue to do, uh, will that lower the price of gasoline for the poor American consumer who's shocked every, every time he goes to fill up his tank? And Powell said, well, you know, no, Senator, it, it, I don't really have the power to do that with interest rates. Ah, oh, well, Mr. Chair, uh, what about groceries? You know, the, the American housewife is just hurting from the price of groceries. Are your interest rate uh, hikes going to help her? Well, no, Senator, I, I, I can't say that if I keep raising interest rates that food prices are going to go down. I can't say that. Okay, well, Chair Powell, you can say, though, that if you keep raising interest rates, some people are going to lose their jobs, Right. Yes, 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 Senator. I'm afraid that's you know one of the side effects of raising interest rates. That would be true. Okay, let's uh, do a roundup here, Chair Powell. What you're telling me is that when you raise interest rates, it won't help inflation, but it will throw people out of work. Do you not understand that if you're going to have inflation anyway, it would be better if people had a job? So, you know, long, embarrassed silence. And then Powell launches into five minutes of word salad, just trying to change the subject, basically. But that is what we are facing. So this is a classic example of institutional arrogance where the Fed, believe, in fact, has a congressional mandate to deliver price stability, which is you know low and moderate inflation for the American economy. Now, that's a law that was passed. That's a mandate upon the Fed. Unfortunately, the geniuses who passed that law never considered that the Fed doesn't actually have the power to, to deliver that. But boy, are they ever going to try. And so, you know, it, this is like a lot of things that governments do. 
where it sounds good if you say it fast, it's a noble goal, but nobody thinks about the government's ability to actually deliver it, and certainly nobody thinks about the unintended consequences and the side effects. And for goodness sake, we ought to know all about side effects now in the era of the pandemic, where I'm not even talking about the side effects from vaccines. That's a whole other subject that would probably pretty controversial. But we are living right now with the side effects of having decided to shut down the world economy in an attempt to stop COVID. And in the United States, for example, when we locked down the economy entirely and commanded people to stay at home everywhere in the nation, we were having 30,000 cases a day. Now today, more than two years later, we have 180,000 cases a day, six times more than when we guaranteed we were going to stop it by causing a depression. Well, Boy, did that ever fail. But it sure seemed like a good idea at the time because everybody was in such a panic. Do something, do something, do something, do something. Well, you can get voted out of office if you don't do something. But I can think of a president a president who got voted out of office because he did do something and just about destroyed the economy. That's our last president. And, you, and, and you know, it's the, the, another side effect is the impact on kids' education, you know, I would suppose not just oh here, my but around God, the world, yes. right? I mean, they were set and, back. You know, that, they were set back gonna... by by years, and and in some places, sadly, it's still going on. Well, you know that's that's true, and the worst thing about that is, you know, children. You know, my my I'm I'm speaking outside of the realm of economics now, but I feel confident about this because this is my wife's specialty. Um, children undergo you know various developmental periods in their life where during certain years you're very able to acquire language skills and during other years you're able to acquire math skills and if you've had your education delayed by just a year and you're three years old there's stuff that you can only learn by going to preschool or just going over to a friend's house and just engaging in unstructured rough and tumble play where you learn how to get along with other people. You learn about body boundaries and social boundaries. You learn how not to take it too far, how to engage in constructive games with other people. These are pre-linguistic, pre-intellectual skills which you can only acquire in a two-year window between age two and age four. And if you miss that window, you are simply not socializable. We got we got we got a generation of a generation of permanent juvenile delinquents coming up. This is a serious problem. Hmm. So inflation's going to go away. That problem's not. <laughs> that pro- that side effect is going to linger. Um, big picture, Don. If you can make just one point, what's the most important single point you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion today about inflation? and uh, why there's a reason for both optimism and caution. Okay. Well, on the inflation side, um, the worst thing I could possibly tell you about inflation is that the worst case you know, pessimist scenarios about inflation getting embedded and out of control and you know, it's like Pandora's box, uh, that's just not true. That's not true. The inflation we're ha- we have was caused by an extraordinary one-time event of money creation. That's done. So it's just getting metabolized by the economy. It's in the process of, you know, think of it as like a, a, a python that eats a pig and just takes a couple of days for the pig to pass through the python. So we're at the point where the inflation is being excreted out of the back end of the python. So the good news is that's done. Now, the Fed is either going to keep raising interest rates until it causes a recession or it's not. 
So, you know, if it doesn't, then that's great news. If it does, then that's bad news. But the worst news would be if the Fed causes a recession and we have out-of-control inflation. So we have the possibility of two things going wrong at once. And I'm here to tell you that there's one you don't need to worry about. That's a solved problem. That's inflation. The Fed is still an unsolved problem. And maybe they'll get squared away and it'll happen. Now, if you would permit me just to have you know one more minute, uh, I want to talk about something that's entirely outside of inflation. And I think it's the most optimistic thing I can say. And I think it's something that people need to hear right now. May I? Please. I want to say that the greatest... You ever, you know, there's that famous expression, necessity is the mother of invention. People love invention, but they hate necessity. Uh, nobody <laughs> wants to be in trouble. Nobody wants to have to scramble to survive. But when you do have to scramble to survive, boy, do you get inventive. And so we've had a number of experiences in world history. And, you know, for Americans, uh, the big ones would be the Civil War, uh, World War II, and now the pandemic. And during all of those, you know, these were all existential crises where we had to invent our way out of it. And so, for example, uh, the Civil War created, basically created the railroads that made the 20th century possible. World War II, oh my God, so many basic technologies have come out of World War II that we just take for granted. Not a lot of people know this, but... In 1945, in the closing months of the war, in, in both the Pacific Theater and the European Theater, all the major combatants, the United States, Britain, Germany, and Japan, all had jet fighters in the field. They only had two or three of them, but they had them. And they were no good. They didn't make any difference. It was too little too late. But that was 1945. Just four years later, in 1949, the British aircraft company de Havilland had a passenger jet in the air. And there are lots of things that have created the modern world. And if you had to rank the 10 most important things that make the, so the post-World War II world what it is, uh, global jet transportation, that would be one of them. One that we, you know, who knows when we'd have that if it weren't for the exigencies of World War II. So there are so many things that are going to come out of what I call World War V, V for virus. The great thing about this war is it wasn't nation versus nation. It was all the nations in the world together versus an external enemy, the virus. So we've got that going for us. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy about the vaccines. You know, I, I took the vaccines. Uh, I Knowing what I know now, I'm, I, I wish I hadn't. They're highly imperfect. But like I told you, those first jet fighters, Boy, were they ever imperfect. The one that Germany had, its fuselage was made of wood. Now, don't ever try strapping a jet engine on a wooden airplane. Bad idea. So say what you want about the vaccines. They're safer than that. But five years from now, because necessity has caused us to test these experimental vaccines on billions of people, we're learning about how to do this newfangled style of vaccines where they're just instant, customizable mRNA vaccines. Five years from now, we're going to cure cancer with this. Now, that's not what anybody wants to hear right now. Everybody's a vaccine skeptic right now. Five years from now, you're going to be so glad we went through this. Think about the way people use Zoom now uh, as a substitute for physical travel. Well, there's something lost by not going to the office. You know, in my business before the pandemic, 
I'd spend probably 30% of the year you know, on airplanes and in hotels visiting clients in person. And there's a certain quality of interaction you have when you fly around the world being in person with people. You know, I get that. But maybe the sort of emotional bandwidth of my interactions with clients isn't as good as on Zoom, but I get to do five times more of it. And I don't exhaust myself in in, in just you know, useless travel. I mean, I've seen the insides of enough uh, higher agency hotels, believe me, the last five lifetimes. So we are in a post-war boom. We are... I know it doesn't seem like this because, you know, we've had a couple of recent quarters with small negative GDP growth and you hear the word recession every day. But I'm telling you, we are in a decade right now, which at the end of this decade, we're going to look back on it and say, wow, that was kind of like the 50s. That was a post-war boom. When the post-war boom of the 50s started, the year 1950, GDP was 13%. You know what inflation was in 1950? 9.6% 9.6% higher than it is now. Wow. Yep. But by the time it all, it all settled out, it all settled out. And the 50s were, you know, there are a lot of things we can look back on that were regrettable about the 50s, to be sure. But that, in many ways, was the best decade ever for America. We get to do that again now. Well, that's that's really uh, inspiring. And um, I, 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 I can't say I don't hope that everything you've said is true and accurate. <laughs> I, I certainly do, and uh, I'll be looking forward to the rest of the uh, decade to see it all come true. Don, we'd be pleased you could be with us today. I want to thank you about, on behalf of myself and our listeners. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow the work of Don Luskin and as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye.